everybody, it's me, Peaches Christ, your cult leader, and you're listening to another episode of Midnight Mass, the podcast where we celebrate all things cult movie. And I'm here with my fantastic co-host, of course, Michael Verratti. Hi, Michael. How's it going? Going great, Peaches. How about you? I'm doing well. I am very excited about today's episode because, well, this movie I know is near and dear to both of our hearts. Do you want to uh, let the listeners in on what movie we're going to be exploring today? Well, today we are leaving Earth and we're going to take a strange trip to a planet without men by visiting the 1991 cult classic Vegas in Space, directed by Philip R. Ford and starring Doris Fish, Miss X, Tippy, and a host of other San Francisco drag icons. And uh, as Peach has mentioned, this is a movie that's important to both of us and our personal histories, and I cannot wait to dig in. Okay, so I think what we should um, talk about first and foremost is that you and I uh, might be two of the biggest fans. I mean, we could actually we could actually maybe even award ourselves that title because the listeners may not know this, but it was really you and I who who have been instrumental in making sure that every five years since the fifteenth anniversary of this fantastic locally made film, you know, I'm a San Francisco ghoul through and through, uh, we have found a way to celebrate it somehow. So uh, now, Michael, you weren't majorly a part of the uh, 15th anniversary we did. Um, However, I did know that you and I both, you know, shared a love for the film. But the 15th anniversary happened, well, 15 years ago at the Clay Theater, where um, I got to uh, host a Midnight Mass screening um, of Vegas in Space, and we actually had a a pretty almost full cast reunion. And for me, uh, this was the first time I'd actually met uh, some of these folks. Now, I was lucky enough to have befriended Timmy Spence, uh, who is in the movie, uh, and also the creator of the theme song, and I had met uh, Philip R. Ford, and was, a, of course, a, a big fan. But I had never met Miss X. I had never met uh, Ginger. You know, so this was a really exciting event. And uh, and then five years later, for the 20th anniversary, you stepped in to celebrate. Yes, uh, for the 20th anniversary, I actually wrote a expansive, complete, well, not complete, but a very thorough oral history of the movie where I interviewed Philip Ford, uh, the director, Miss X. Uh, You were part of that interview. I talked to Timmy Spence, as well as I talked to Lloyd Kaufman uh, of Troma, who distributed this movie. And uh, PeachesChrist.com was quite gracious to publish that article. And it has since uh, been utilized in classrooms for queer theory and queer history. So I'm very proud of that piece in the way that it has been... uh, I was able to celebrate the 20th and and that's how I got to know those people and um, have subsequently, I I put Miss X in something that I wrote and directed. And uh, I keep getting asked to to talk about this movie. I've spoken about it on a Blumhouse podcast and I wrote about it for Vice. And I, uh, I I really, it all began with that 20th article, 20th anniversary article that uh, I did for your website, which, which was an incredible article and dear listeners, 
Uh, we know that a lot of the blogs on peacheschrist.com uh, have gone missing over the years, but uh, Michael and I are in the process of getting those things back up and reloaded on a brand new website. So uh, you'll be able to check that out. Um, and, and we're going to talk a little bit um, with uh, Philip R. Ford himself uh, in a bit about how he too has um, published some incredible stuff online that you should certainly check out if you want to know more about this movie. Um, okay, and then uh, the, 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 the next anniversary, uh, after your 20th anniversary um, blog uh, uh, celebration, was the 25th anniversary, which you and I, Michael, partnered. We joined forces, and it was actually the first time we really um, collaborated, and now we collaborate all the time, but we produced an event with the Frameline Film Festival for the 25th anniversary that ended up being a big, spectacular event at the Victoria Theater, uh, where the cast reunited once again. And for that event, uh, we pulled out all the stops. So we had we had big drag tribute numbers. I dressed as Queen Veneer, um, a, a very uh, large Queen Veneer. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, yeah, so it was that was a, an incredible night and I can't thank you enough for partnering with me and, and co-producing that event. That was uh, really one of the great highlights of, of our partnership, I think, because like you said, it was one of the first times that we came together to do something like that. And in honor of this movie that we both love, and I think that uh, that in, in many ways is at the DNA of what this very show is about, this love of these movies and finding ways to celebrate them and sort of worship at their altar and, and that we were able to do that for this movie that means so much to both of us. I'm always gonna cherish that. It's also the only time I ever bleached my hair because I played Philip Ford right. in the show. And uh, that was that was my blonde summer. Yeah. So <laughs> and it looks good. It was a good look for you. And uh, that was that, yeah, that was a fabulous show. And of course, you know, now it's five years later, it's the 30th anniversary. And Michael and I, thank God, uh, decided to uh, create the Midnight Mass Cult Movie Podcast, uh, which is perfect timing because we're not quite yet ready to um, have an event. We're, we're exiting the pandemic, and you you may be listening to this evergreen episode years later, but you know we're we're actually recording this episode about Vegas and space at the 30th anniversary. We're we're exiting hopefully the pandemic, but we're not yet in a place where we can do live events so we're doing this um show this podcast uh this episode is dedicated to vegas and space and um you know now that you know that michael and i are obsessed with the movie maybe we should talk a little bit about why we're obsessed i mean you know uh michael you've you've heard me talk about it a lot but i, I want to hear from you because i actually am less clear about when your obsession kicked in well, I think that our, our origin stories with this movie are a little similar mm -hmm. because a lot of my education in the world of cult horror and exploitation cinema began with a program called USA Up All Night. Up and All Night. Exactly. <laughs> hosted by the legendary Rhonda Shear. Uh. And uh, Rhonda had hosted uh, Vegas in Space on Up All Night in 1992. And... Um, it was kind of part of a package deal that they did with Troma, where they showed a lot of Troma movies like Toxic Avenger and Class of Dukem High. And if you know those movies, they're great midnight fare and they're wild and crazy cinema. Um, 
But Vegas in Space, of course, stands out because it's a drag movie mm-hmm. made enti- populated entirely by queer people and drag queens. And unlike today, where there is uh, a, a drag season uh, aplenty on television, um, there were not queer people generally on TV and there were not drag queens on TV. And so to see this, it was it was sort of singular moment. I will never forget it. I, I really was like, I, I don't know entirely what I'm watching, but I love it. And then fast forward to years later when I started working in film and working with, with creators uh, and I had, you know, done some work at, with, with Lloyd at Troma and I met you and realized the San Francisco uh, connection, I, I rediscovered the movie and it was kind of like finding a long lost love. Uh, and I, I just think it's so important to queer history because I can't stress enough how uh, desperately we needed to see queer people on TV during that time and, and how much of a, a beacon in the dark this was, you know? I mean, you and I, uh, and you're a little bit younger than I am, but you and I have a very similar introduction to the film. Um, like you were saying, um, I I was hungry for, for anything drag. And so my, and you know, I've talked about this a lot, my entrance into the world of drag, my introduction was through Divine, because I grew up in Maryland, uh, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted as many movies with drag queens uh, as possible in my life, you know? And there weren't very many. In fact, there were very few. And the the ones that existed were often straight people, you know, who had to do drag for some ridiculous purpose. Like a gun was being held at their head, right? Like some like it hot, you know, we're escaping death. So we must wear women's clothes or, you know, Tootsie in order to have a, a an acting career. Or Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, I can't see my children unless I do drag. Well. That doesn't speak to me because I'm fucking queer and I want to see queer people doing drag a la Divine, a la Tim Curry and Richard O'Brien. And Vegas in Space was another one of those movies that really spoke to my heart. Um, and the the other thing is, these are drag queens in the 80s who are making um, a, a Barbarella you know, inspired parody, you know. Uh, um, so it's, it's, it's got all that great stuff of, well, it's its own original film, but it's clearly inspired by Barbarella and Doris Fish, the star, who worked with Philip R. Ford, the brilliant director, you know, they they understood kitsch, they understood color and design, and they understood, you know, using dollar store, you know, props to, to, to look fantastic. Miss X just chews up the scenery as Queen Veneer. She is so fantastic as the villain. And so it was one of those gems that spoke directly to me. And luckily, Michael, luckily in Annapolis, Maryland, there was a Tower Records and Tower Video, and that Tower Video buyer bought the Troma catalog. So I had access to Class of Newcomb High, The Toxic Avenger, and, you know, Vegas in Space, as well as, you know, uh, other uh, Troma titles. So I was able to watch Vegas in Space, you know, repeatedly because, um, you know, otherwise, like you say, you either recorded it off USA Up All Night. Do you remember recording movies from TV? Right. Um, well, or, I uh, or you only I, saw it the once, you know. That's true. And I have I have probably still somewhere stashed in my parents' house like tapes of USA Up All Night. Uh, yeah, that and a lot of <laughs> porn. 
Um, so, <laughs> uh, without further ado, we want to introduce our first interview of the show. We were uh, so humbled and so thrilled to have our, our friends uh, join us who just happen to be the makers of this movie, the fantastic Miss X who plays Queen Veneer and the director of the film, Philip R. Ford. So we're going to uh, turn it over to the interview we did with them and we'll be back afterwards. Okay, oh my God, this is so exciting. We have with us here in the virtual studio, uh, the, the director of Vegas in Space, uh, Philip R. Ford, and the co-writer and star of Vegas in Space, Miss X, welcome. Thank you. Hello, everyone out there. Hello, yes. Peaches and Michael. Hello, hello. It's wonderful to see you all. Wonderful to see you both, but it's wonderful to be seen by you all. It's lovely yes. to see you. I'd like to touch you, but I can't. <laughs> virtual. Well, we haven't soon. developed that technology yet. Yeah. But yes, I mean, I, I think, you know, as we've discussed, Michael and I have already told the listeners that we have a tradition now, which is to get together every five years or so uh, and, and celebrate the anniversary of Vegas in Space. And so this year it's a little different because we aren't quite yet doing in-person events. Um, and so we're doing this uh, on our podcast, which conveniently has come out this year. So we are at least celebrating the 30th anniversary of Vegas in Space. Um, and so the biggest, Amazing. I think most obvious question for anyone who's part of a cult experience is, how does it feel, you know, to be looking back at 30 years of Vegas in Space and, and to know that 30 years ago you created something that so many of us would still be talking about and celebrating? It feels like this. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, isn't it, Philip? Who knew? Yes, um, I'm still quite surprised that people are interested, um, and they are. Um, uh, I'm very gratified and grateful that people are still interested. It seems like so long ago because, you know, I know we'll touch upon the making of the, the process, the, the making of the film, which sort of has a legendary uh, eight years, nine years. So if you think about it, it was really 40 years we started working on this almost. 1983. I was 20. So that's my excuse for making such a stupid movie. Uh, oh, yeah, I was 22. <laughs> now. Yeah, 40 years. So if I well, that actually is a, a question I've never really asked before, which is that if Miss X and Doris were, you know, a little bit older, I mean, 20 years old, to have you know a director come in and, and tell these pretty big personalities like what to do. What was how was that dynamic? I mean, Philip. I guess Philip had already proven himself to you, ladies. Is that right, Miss? That is correct. And we were happy to give it all over to him so that we could just be glamorous. <laughs> Learn that line, hit our mark. And I felt I was part of the studio system. A project came to me with, well, two-thirds of a script and a cast. I mean, Doris was going to play Tracy Daniels. Miss X was going to play Veneer. Tiffany was going to play Princess Angel. It's almost like I was at MGM 
and um, they were giving me this and we were going to build sets. So I just had to do one job where I had started making films when I was 15, where I was used to doing every job, uh, you know, getting the sets, hanging the lights, you know. And as I made more films, oh, I have someone to do the lights for me. I have someone to run the camera for me. So it was a progression. But gosh, I made, started making films at 15. So I already had a good chunk of uh, experience under my belt. And each one had sort of built upon the prior one in terms of sophistication that's the right word. And now, Philip, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, when you made Roller Coaster to Hell, which is a short film that you made prior to Vegas in Space, wasn't that when you met Doris was the making of that film? Well, it was early on. I was acquainted with her um, and she did show up to a uh, scene uh, where I had a sort of call for extras and uh, she never turned down an opportunity to be on camera. So I had gotten acquainted with Doris and then later Miss X and Lori Naslund, who is in the film as the um, blonde uh, bombshell bimbo, um, Debbie, Debbie Dane. And, uh, uh, you know, I guess this isn't a secret now, but at that time, immigration marriages were quite the rage among this crowd. And uh, Doris was from Australia. So Lori Naslin was Doris's real life immigration wife. Oh. And Lori was in a film class, a Super 8 film class with me at San Francisco State. And we got together at a screening party. And the first time I really remember Doris, and X, I think you were there, was a screening party at someone's house where we were showing Super 8 films on, on, a, on a sheet. And I think I was showing my uh, little film, uh, uh, Trouble in Paradise, um, sort of a memoir about growing up in Marin with rich, spoiled new wave kids in the uh, late, late 70s slash early 80s. I remember Doris came to that. Were you there, X? I, w I was. I, I loved seeing them all go that awful way. <laughs> okay. Yes. You know, I have to ask, because I don't think I've ever asked this before as well. Miss X, you and Doris uh, were already friends when Philip was approached to do the movie. You, you and Doris had already uh, been working on the idea. And I know that Doris gets credit for sort of pushing this project uh, and really like, you know, uh, What's the word? I guess. Well, masterminding. Let's get, get, yes, the masterminding. Masterminding. Right. But how did you meet Doris, and and what what was that collaboration like? Um, yeah, we we had done live shows, um, and we had actually gone to Australia, and performed there as well. By this point, and uh, we were also, I believe, Philip, weren't we doing greeting cards already? No, that came a little yeah. bit later because I, I recall that sort of rearing its head around 84 and we'd wrapped up the yeah, film yeah. by then. Okay. So the Golden Age uh, of Green Cards was later. Uh, I met Doris through Tippy. Um, Tippy was probably one of, if not the first person that I met, no one of the first people that I met when I uh, hitchhiked from LA to San Francisco which was my end destination, but it took me uh, f from leaving the Midwest, um, but it took me two and a half years to get there. And uh, I, I always say my time in LA was a uh, five-year sentence, but the nice judge gave me time off for good behavior. And uh, so uh, I came to town, I stayed with uh, Tippy and her roommates, and I worked with one of her roommates at the De Young Museum, but uh, Tippy had a friend, an Oklahoma oil heiress, Ambie Sextris, 
whose parents paid her to stay out of town. And so she became a professional shopper for herself. And um, I, she had an apartment, a flat, but she also had a townhouse, a two-story townhouse, which was her closet. And it was just wigs and dresses and and jewelry and dolls still in the in the in the in the packaging. And she also had this um, uh, fantasy about flying. And so she had sort of a um, armature hanging from the ceiling that she would get herself up into probably high on angel dust. I don't know what and pretend to fly. <laughs> and uh, so she threw herself a birthday party. And the theme of the birthday party was come as your favorite character from a Fellini movie. And so that's how I met Doris. Um, Tippy kept saying, oh, she'll be here. She'll be here. Oh, she's fabulous. You'll love her. Oh, there's nobody like her, really. It's, she, she's worth waiting for. And I kept saying, it's so late. We've been here. I mean, Andy had been just gone to bed hours before, and we're still hanging around downstairs. And Dora showed up as herself, mm -hmm. uh, as, as if Doris was a character in a Fellini movie, um, an off-art <laughs> orange and red and yellow print uh, A-line dress, and um, the blonde and the and the uh, the Dusty Springfield makeup, you know, lips out, um, cheeks, uh, caverns of despair, eyes, uh, pools of loneliness, um, as she described her makeup at one point. The heavy no makeup look was another way that she did it. And of course, my fascination with her, besides who she was and the, and the accent, was her, she had the whitest teeth I'd ever seen. And it was paint. And that drew me to her like a moth to a flame. Uh, so that's how I met Doris. We, we got together subsequently. Uh, they were getting ready to do another show um, right around Halloween at the 330 Grove uh, SIR Center, the, the gay community center on 330 Grove Street. And uh, uh, Tippy said when I was over there visiting, well, Miss Axis, um, she's literate. Let's, she could help us write this thing. And that is how our first show, Sluts A Go-Go, was born. Um, about, uh, well, we don't have to talk about what it's about, but it's, it's <laughs> a, a musical comedy. Um, and that was where Miss X was born, actually. I was the uh, runaway heiress to the Brand X fortune. Love that. Now, you mentioned that the first time you met Doris was at a party, and Philip talks about meeting her at a screening. And this all seems to be like a perfect confluence of events that lead to this movie, which in the opening credits say yeah. is based on a party. So, yeah, exactly. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think for fans who have stumbled on this, whether on late night cable or on DVD, to see the credit based on a party by, what does that mean in the world of Philip Ford and Miss Sex and Doris Fish to make a movie based on a party? Right. Uh, well, Doris went to New York and brought back vats of Dayglo pigment and rolls and rolls of Dayglo fun fur and mylar and plastic in many different colors. 
and uh, we had done, or they had thrown a party uh, previously, Vegas in a toilet. And so uh, we, they decided to throw another party and this was Vegas in space. And they decorated the house. And then after the party, um, and this is at Ginger Quest's house. Uh, we all lived together. Um, I can't remember if I was living there at that time or not, but it doesn't matter. Um, and uh, of course, my friend Charles Phoenix always says, but we're not talking about that now. Um, and uh, so uh, they threw this party and then Ginger went to start to take all of these hangings and everything down. And Dora said, no, no, leave it up. It looks like a, looks like a movie set. Let's do a movie. So that's really how it started. We got together and started to write the movie. Doris found Philip, thank God, who was the perfect director for this. And um, I was tough but fair. Yes, you were. You were indeed. Um, there were times when uh, we all got kind of thin-lipped, but Philip drew the line when the line needed to be drawn. And um, and so, yes, that's, that is how Vegas Space was born. Wow. So, Philip, when you are approached and they, and they say, uh, this is a film based on a party, and by the way, we're going to shoot it in a Victorian apartment. So for, for those of you who don't know, San Francisco obviously is full of these beautiful old Victorian buildings, but they're not what you would describe as sound stages or movie sets. Um, and, you know, they're small. Uh, so th this film was primarily shot uh, in a Victorian apartment. Uh, what, what were you thinking as far as the challenges go? Or did you did you sort of embrace it right away? Uh, where do I sign? No, um, <laughs> of course I did. Yes. Um, I, I knew what I was getting into with this gang. X sort of, uh, uh foreshadowed the, um, uh, the, uh, show landscape at that time. And Doris had a video camera, a beta max camera very early on around 1981. So she was very much into, uh, filming herself. Uh, on stage or makeup test, she really used it as a mirror. So she often gave me the camera to film her, and I had a car, so I often drove to the gigs and I would tape the shows for her. It was really um, an oddity to have a camera, a video camera at that time. Um, so I I mentioned Lori Naslund. She had a uh, a girlfriend, Sarah Cicchini, who uh, was a barmaid at the Hotel Utah in San Francisco. And I was in... Um, uh, in uh, San Francisco State in the film department, and I was uh, a big drinker by then. Again, I was 19, 20 years old. I'd run down to the Hotel Utah after work and get um, uh, free cocktails from Sarah, and she kept saying, Doris wants to make a movie with you. And I said, okay, great, I'd love to. And originally it was going to be a, a remake of Valley of the Dolls, mm. which um, I – at that time, being so young, didn't know what it was. But, oh, I learned. I learned <laughs> what it was. I was schooled. Um, so I said, sure. So I got together with X and um, uh, uh, Doris one morning, uh, late 1982, at the uh, It's Tops Diner on Market Street, now uh, retired, but at the time a very uh, charming vintage breakfast spot. And um, – they, I remember it as if it were yesterday, gave me 29 typed pages for um, this script. And the first part of it was really what you see in the movie. There was some, a scene that was cut out, but it just sort of petered out. 
And I'll, I'll admit it being naive, back then we, I was in film school and there was the famous, it's a minute a page. So I thought, well, we're going to have a 29-minute movie. And I think we earnestly went into it thinking we were going to make a half-hour movie. And I said, that's fine. I, I, it certainly always occurred to me, what does one do with a half-hour movie? But it certainly became something else very quickly. So what it ended up becoming, to answer your question, Peaches, is that it wasn't that at the time. It was just, we're going to start filming. And it was really just a bare bones of what ended up being shot. Um, when uh, many years ago, a, a, a producer in New York approached me and wanted to do an opera or a stage musical of Vegas in Space. And he said, is there a shooting script? And I said, well, there was at the time. In fact, in the spaceship scene, if you look at one of the swivel chairs, that's one of the uh, uh, spaceship chairs, you can see my script in a binder right there on the chair. But um, <laughs> I, didn't, I did not have uh, a full shooting script at that time. We wrote a lot more. And in light of some of the technical difficulties we had, some things we did over completely. Uh, for example, the entire um, black and white section in the middle we shot once, and it was okay, but there was a technical difficulty in which the film was, I think it was flashed, and we got it processed, and everything was blank, null, void. There was nothing on the screen. Um, so people say, why did it take so long to complete? Things like that happened. So we redid the whole thing a year later. Wow. Um, much better. Yes, it was a blessing that it happened that way. And just to add to what you said, I remember looking at the rushes of the first scene or two that we filmed uh, on the wall in Doris's flat. Very big, yes. right? And we were spellbound. And that, I think, was one of mm -hmm. the moments when we said, this is more than just a short. We're not making a short here. Look at this. Look how great it looks. Why don't we make it full length? Yes. So... Padding out, padding out, that sounds a bit condescending, but padding out the film, for example, the whole shopping mall sequence was never there. That was written entirely to take up 20 minutes. How do we get this to 85 minutes, the established length? Uh, the whole black and white sequence was probably only a third of what it ended up being. The whole parts about Babs Velour and all those ancillary characters weren't there. Really, there were just the five key characters. And later, these ancillary characters, Tommy Pace and Savannah Nova and uh, the Dragladite, were added later to make it a full-length movie. Likewise, the dream sequence wasn't there at all. You know, that has a rather uh, famous uh, ideology in that um, I just remember going to Doris's kitchen one time when we were just life was a production meeting we were planning the next thing so ideas came up and Doris said oh we're going to have a dream sequence because she wanted to use the line um don't worry it was just a bad dream sequence when Sheila was waking up screaming oh that's a great line you know so yeah she said we're gonna have a dream sequence that's it I sat down and quote wrote to that in that I was so um um, Ernest, I went out and, you know, went to the library and, got, you know, got Jung's um, Man and His Symbols. I had been acquainted with Freud and the Interpretation of Dreams. I watched Spellbound. I looked for um, uh, the Salvador Dali dream sequence, and I put every cliche together that I could find. It was also the birth of uh, MTV. And that's why it's shot on a little video and it's filmed off the screen because we were trying to emulate the very early cheap um, Video West MTV uh, rock and roll videos, you know, with the nonsense fast paced editing. So that took up another 
three or four minutes. So it grew in chunks from the original 29-page TypeScript. Wow. Well, I I think it's important to note when Peaches says that this movie was shot inside of an apartment, all of it, pretty much, with the exception of a few scenes, were shot inside of this Victorian home on Oak Street in San Francisco. And when you look at the movie, you have, as you mentioned, a space shopping mall, the, the, the rocket ship itself. Just talk to me a little bit about the technical achievement slash difficulties of, of building all of that in one small space. Well... That's why it took a bit of time. Uh, uh, there's a myth that the film took eight years to complete, which is true if you take into account the post-production fundraising period. But it was actually shot in a year and 14 months. So um, I had a, a, a great crew, but we just had um, a total of three people, uh, myself and the cinematographer, Robin Clark, um, uh, the cameraman, Al Gonzalez, and our sound recorder, Todd Ritchie. So it was just the four of us making the film. Occasionally someone would show up for a day or two to be uh, uh production assistant or continuity as Doris called her the detail queen, the DQ. <laughs> and she said, why do I have to wear the same earrings as yesterday? We had to write a line. She was quickly chromo variable. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh they change, no, they change color. Oh, yes. We would show up and we would plan a scene or two or three, and it would go anywhere from five, six, seven, eight days. I think the longest was 10 days. Uh, that was the uh, shopping mall scene. That was pretty much that and the black and white section were the only pieces that weren't shot in that flat at 422 Oak Street. That and the exteriors. Yeah. Yeah, the exteriors out by the Marin Headlands. Um, so we would put up... So the, there were like six or seven scenes that were the same room. The spaceship was the same room as the throne room, as the reception room, as the girls' quarters, as Princess Angel's lair. Uh, so we would do a scene, and then we would uh, take it down. And sometimes we'd put the same thing up. I remember shooting Princess Angel's room. Uh, we called it the Doom Room in the script, and also the girls' quarters in the same week, like back-to-back, two different sets um, in the same room take Doris a day or two to build them. So there was a routine. Uh, Doris would build a set and we'd show up and uh, uh, Robin would see what she's built and start thinking about how to light it. He had a great big suitcase full of gels and clothespins and we would rent some lights and or uh, get them from the college, San Francisco State, and I would sort of block it out and plan it while the uh, interminable waiting of getting one or two or five or 10 or 15 people into drag took place. So there was no schedule. Um, there was no, <laughs> it's quitting time. It was just continuous. We lived there and we went until we could. And then we'd stop and go home and have some food and sleep and wash our faces and come back and uh, 24 hours and pick up again. Usually it was at night. Um, Tippy had a video store job, so oftentimes we'd be filming and we'd have half a dozen people there. But she had to go to work from 5 to 9 p.m. because she had that job and her husband, her boyfriend owned the uh, the video store. So that was a bit of a consternation, <laughs> but... I remember more than once. I remember, I remember shooting that scene in the um, uh, Vanity Lounge where throwing Tippy down the stairs over and over again. And she really didn't say no, but she did throw herself down the stairs many times. And then I had to put her in my car very quickly and take her to work. Bruised and battered. <laughs> wow, that, that sort of sums up so much of what makes these kinds of movies so special. Like, 
they're made far outside of the Hollywood machine. And, you know, there were no unions involved and everything's renegade. Uh, I, I would like to talk some about the financing of the movie because I think that that's got um, a romantic aspect uh, to it as well. Um, but I think one of the things that makes Vegas in Space so special and so San Franciscan in many ways is that it is part of this legacy of drag queens making movies. The Coquettes, you know, made short films and, and put themselves, uh, you know, in these crazy movies. And, you know, these um, performance troops, the Angels of Light and the Sluts of Go-Go and the the fact that that friends were making art you know not really with the the purpose of uh, becoming famous or making money necessarily uh, in mind although i guess with doris uh it, it was there was a goal to yes, get famous let's be real. right but i i you know i feel like this movie this drag is so progressive it's so ahead of its time the look of the film is so brilliant and the fact that you've got four girlfriends featured, you know, Tippy, Ginger, Miss X, and Doris. Um, and Frida. I, don't forget Frida. Yeah. Don't forget Frida, Arturo. I mean, there's so many, there, you know, the, 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 it's chosen family making this movie under um, sort of harsh circumstances. Uh, what was it like as far as your friendship goes? And, you know, how, how did... How did you balance things? Because it sounds like you guys were together 24-7. Well, we weren't really. We okay. we would take our, we'd take breaks, definitely. We <laughs> all, always lived together. Um, I had my flat on Market Street. Um, Doris had an apartment on Market Street at one point. Uh, and, of course, Ginger had the flat that we shot most of the movie in. Um and uh, Tippy lived different places. She lived with me for a while. But uh, we loved each other. I mean, and we appreciated each other. We loved the same things. We loved the same movies. And um, when Doris got that video set up, it was such a boon to be able to... Uh, uh, copy movies from TV and watch Damn Yankees and learn all the choreography and watch Victor Victoria and learn all the choreography to Leslie Ann Warren's number, Chicago, Illinois. It's like a shiny toy. And, um, and The Bad Seed, which, of course, Philip and the rest of us uh, ended up putting on as a straight play. Mm. Um, not well, who were you, Miss X? I was Christine Penmark. I was the long-suffering mother oh. of the of the evil, evil little child played <laughs> by Tippy. I will say, in regard to that, um, this whole paradigm of Vegas and space led to so many other things. It led yes. to a continuous sort of ten-year collaboration with this group and with sometimes other people on board. But very quickly, we went to the Gay Cable Network. We were on TV every week, and then the 181 Club, a series of shows, the Happy Hour Show, Nightclub of the Living Dead, and there were other things that Doris and this ex did: right. theater and the greeting cards. But we'd always come back together again and regroup and then the bad seed. But these would just be a germ of an idea in that I recall just saying, we should do the bad seed. Tippy would be perfect. And Doris 
kept at it. Like she was, you know, we haven't talked about the whole AIDS pandemic occurring at that time, but she was going to get things done because it was a time to get things done. Okay. We had the movie, but we didn't have the money we needed to do a special effects or a sound mix of preliminary. So we're going to do something else. So she made us do the bad seed. And I said, all right, I, I directed plays in high school. I learned from my beloved drama teacher, Barbara J how to direct a play. So I'm really going to try to direct this as a play and that there's blocking and we're not playing for laughs. Of course, it's going to be hysterical, but you don't do the drag show out of it. You're going to pretend you're in a little theater production. Um, so many, many other things grew out of that. It wasn't just this movie. And that carried on until after Doris passed. At the end, I, I alluded earlier to Valley of the Dolls. In 1994, I did a massive live production of Valley of the Dolls at the on-Broadway theater. And then it was like, uh, as one critic said, um, uh, 15 scenes and 40 scene changes. It was like <laughs> four hours long. And there were eight short films. But that I was an extension of this. Doris was gone. Connie Champagne did a fantastic um, uh, uh, Neely O'Hara and Miss X played Helen Lawson, the uh, Susan Hayward character. And that was sort of the, for me, the end of that era, but it was three, four years after Doris had passed, you know? Um, so it was a continuum. It went on and on and on. I will say to answer your first question, Peaches, I, I joke, but I felt, feel it was completely true when Doris and Miss X asked me to make this film. I felt like I'd gotten my big break. I felt like I was exactly where I was supposed to be at the right time, at the right place for 10 years. Thanks, Phil. I was pushed. I wasn't, it wasn't my ambition to be on the stage. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it wasn't my ambition to be on the stage. I'd done that in high school, but I ended up getting put on the stage and put on TV and um, developed a character, Philip R. Ford, that was an obnoxious, loud, heavy-drinking, womanizer, um, egocentric talk show host. And the amazing thing is, and Peaches, you may have some of this dynamic, being a much bigger celebrity than I was, People, if you're a character, people think that's you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that is for sure. Uh, well, I think at least with Peaches and uh, I guess with Miss X and Doris, maybe because of the costume, some people kind of get, I get away with maybe a little bit more, but because you were Philip R. Ford, the character. Playing a character named after exactly. myself, but it was a character. Right, and, which I think is fascinating because, yeah, it, of course, so much of what we see of any celebrity in the public eye is a performance. And a lot of people just don't realize these people are, you know, I mean, we're we're finding out that Ellen DeGeneres is apparently a cunt. Well, you know, it doesn't, if you're in show business, it's not really that shocking, you know? It's like. You don't get to where she is for 20 years. Exactly. Right. It's like, of course she is, you know? She plays someone who goes out on stage every day and dances around and is a is a happy, funny lady, lesbian. And, but yeah, when, you know, friends were saying, oh, I can't believe she's mean. It's like, well, uh, yeah, of course she is, you know? She's show business. Yeah. Well, so. Philip, you speak about the legacy that the creating of this movie uh, had amongst the group of you and how that carried on past the film. And uh, I, I'm really interested in kind of discussing that trajectory because you, you touched upon the fact that uh, Doris passed before this movie came out. And then, you know, you went on this sort of world tour of film festivals without her. And... Um, I know for Peaches and I and many folks, we discovered this movie on late night cable, you know, after while this is all going on. So there were 
surely a series of highs and lows during this time. And I, could you just speak to that journey in that time? We um, were installed and in January 91, we had a lovely uh, uh, friend who I sometimes refer to as the heiress who gave us a chunk of money to complete the film. Not a huge amount, but certainly it was a huge amount to us. So that allowed us to finish the post-production, the soundtrack, film the titles, film the model effects, the miniatures, all in a period of eight months, like a real movie. So we had it booked at the Castro Theater for October uh, 1991, six months before it was completed. Um, and um, uh, Doris was very ill, and she passed away in June 1991. Uh, Tippy uh, followed her about six weeks later in August. She passed away. So it was... a, a it was a time that is, just didn't seem real. It seemed like a bitter cheat. We certainly, I think, all had a vision of what it would be like for Doris to be the face of the movie, you know, but she had faded away. And um, I'm sure X had mixed feelings about stepping in as the drag queen face of the movie and had a perfectly fine performance for two or three years on this so-called world tour. But there were a series of unbelievable um, triumphs and some bitter disappointments. But that's showbiz, right? I mean, I was staggered when I heard um, in late 91 that it was playing at the Sundance Film Festival. And um, I will confess I had a friend on the committee who uh, advocated for the film, and I don't think it would have shown if he had not advocated for that film. But um, we all tromped up to uh, Park City without a penny in our pocket, with our polyester fur coats. X's were real. I had a polyester one from um, from the discount store. But um, it was great fun. Met some celebrities, but nothing happened. You know, after it was over, it's like, I'm looking for a distributor. Troma came along. Um, Marty Sokol from Troma reached out to me. Um, I'd sent out teaser videotapes to every distribution company um, in the phone book. And I'm not joking. I actually went to the library and got the New York and Los Angeles phone books and typed out a form letter to each one with a VHS screener and mailed it off. Many were interested. No one wanted to give us any money. And no one could say what they were going to do with the film. Um, and Troma sent me a contract the day I got on the um, on the plane to go to Sundance. And it was actually the only time I had a real dist marketing distribution uh, licensing agreement. And um, I read it. I thought, we can do better than this. And I spent six months looking around, and we couldn't do better. And Marty Sokol was still there. So he uh, I signed with him that year. We had to do some remixing of the soundtrack. So it took like a year for the film to even get signed. And then another year for it to get a Los Angeles premiere. Um, uh, you know, in the meantime, I went to London, I went to uh, festivals in Frankfurt, and X went to Vienna. And so we went to many festivals, but I would never show it theatrically. People would reach out to me, theater owners, times again, we used to show it. So no, only in San Francisco. I played 10 weeks midnights um, in San Francisco, Friday and Saturday nights. And that was fun. I would tromp up there and just watch it. Um, where, where did it play in San Francisco? I went to Lumiere. Oh, at the Lumiere. Okay, that's wonderful. Yeah. From October to December, uh, 1991. Oh, that's so uh, cool. Friday and Saturday at midnight. Um, but it took time for it to build. Um, for example, in terms of uh, the triumphs and the disappointments. So uh, Troma came to me and said very early on, I think it was 94, 95, We've sold this to USA Network. Um, I don't know how many of their films they'd sold to the USA Network, but 
we hadn't really finished what I thought was going to be the theatrical, um, you know, life of it. But uh, that happened, and X and I flew to Los Angeles and did our little segments with uh, Rhonda Shear. It was very exciting. You know, we had ordinary day-to-day jobs, but we got up in the morning, went to the airport, and went and got picked up by Marty Sokol and went to this uh, studio. I think it was the same studio they were shooting Judge Judy in. And I said, I'm going to do my own makeup. Um, X had her look. And we went out and went through our antics with Rhonda Shear, went back home and flew home and went back to our day-to-day job. So it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a very uh, dichotomous um, glamour scene, so to speak. You know, there was real life. And there was also the occasional unbelievable uh, thing that popped up that I, I wouldn't believe myself if you told me that was going to happen. Right. There were highs, wonderful highs. The, the, the shoot with Rhonda was, she was wonderful. She really was. And there were many, many instances like that, uh, that, that just, you know, jacked mm-hmm. us up. But there was a lot of depression as well. Having lost them, our best friends, and and realizing, I mean, how bitter mm. this was their project, particularly Doris. But you know, Tippy's um, uh, credit is introducing Tippy. She thought this was going to be her step, yeah. and she's going to have a career, and. Uh, as challenging as that would have been for her, but it was um, it was very sad. It was very sad, and very uh, we were elated. We were elated so much of the time, and we were depressed so much of the time um, because and guilty, yeah. oddly, because they should have been there, you know. Um, they should have been enjoying all the perks and and traveling and and meeting all the people that we met and uh you know but it was not meant to be i will speak for me um it all came to a screeching halt as well one day it was just over and i flagged that for me as may 1994. um x went through a um uh, a whirlwind romance with his current uh, tall drink of water wife allison farmer chandler and um she came into his life and there was a transformation there and my um uh interest degenerated into um uh walking on the wild side not because i didn't have a ride but because i <laughs> I, you know, uh, so I evolved into a world of um, self-involvement with uh, drugs and alcohol and wanted to leave. I didn't want to be a, I'm saying this, I'm sure it's no surprise, continue to be a character in X's happy romance where um, we were going in very, very different directions. So I did go through about three years that, you know, I would say they were dark. I was completely isolated. I cut myself off from uh, everything. And I think this is all connected. Um, a new crowd came along in 1994, um, uh, Hecklina and Peaches Christ. <laughs> and I said, gosh, I love them. God bless them. I don't care. You know, so um, it's not a secret. I went through a period of um, addiction and homelessness and I didn't have a, a, a an apartment or a phone or a refrigerator or a credit card or a, a bank account. I thought that was fine. I did not want to be a part of um, this world. And eventually, um, you know, I uh, 
turned my life around and built the uh, uh, dazzling middle class lifestyle I have now. But um, that's part of it for me, you know, and X can speak to the trajectory his life took. But I do feel like what we're describing in the 80s and 90s are different people. That's a different person than who I am now. It's not invalidating it. It was a continuation of who I was as a child and a teenager and drama and film. But that person ended at some point and it couldn't have gone on. I would have been insufferable if I were still mincing around trying to be Philip R. Ford, trying to be on TV and on the stage 40 years later. Uh, it just, I lost interest. Oh, not insufferable. Never insufferable. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know uh, uh, just from arriving in San Francisco in the mid-90s and really arriving when there was so much death uh, all around. I mean, you saw it on the streets. You saw it in the grocery store, you know, church and market. You know, you go to the Safeway and it was such a strange time. But Tranny Shack had just started. I had just started performing. And in 1996... Uh, you know, I met Timmy Spence, uh, who created the theme song for Vegas in Space and was one of the regular performers at Tranny Shack, was also 20 years my senior, uh, but we we became very close friends early on. And, um, you know, Timmy would get sick and people would get sick. But in 1996, uh, the cocktail came out that started saving people. And so I think there was this shift um, where Tranny Shack kind of got to start in the second phase where people stopped dying. Um, and the uh, I wanted to say regarding a few things because th this is so interesting. It hasn't come up before in our conversations, but I'm realizing like the fact that you met Marty Sokol, the fact that you did Rhonda Shear, like that had a direct impact on my life uh, mm -hmm. Because these are the ways that people like me were able to see your film in Maryland, where I was growing up. And because of when you shot the film and when I grew up, uh, starting to recognize my own queerness as a child, I was, of course, surrounded by um, images of AIDS. You know, that was all that was in the media. That was all we saw about gay people as young queer people. And so seeing movies like yours, especially your film, it was fun. It was silly. It was hopeful. It was beautiful. It was glamorous. It had a sense of humor. You know, it wasn't until later that I, I understood that the, the behind the scenes story had a very, you know, it's tragic finale that, so you know, that, that AIDS really, yes. you know, um, just, oh, yeah. But I'm so grateful that you made the movie and that it got out because in many ways, it was like Vegas in space and Tales of the City. And I'm I'm embarrassed to admit, but even the real world on MTV that drew me, you know, to San Francisco because I got to see the magic of San Francisco thanks to your movie. Well, and Peaches, I think it's really important too for this new generation who see drag on television essentially every week. Right. Understand that how important and impactful to turn on a late night cable show like USA Up All Night and see a movie made by drag queens in an era where drag was really not in vogue with our community. And you you kept that light on for so many people to find it later. And that is just so impactful and huge. 
and uh you know we we we've talked about it before but i think it's more important now than ever because there's this generation of young queer people who only know drag through one television show and i'm like out here going like mm-hmm. no you dumb bitches you need to watch vegas in space <laughs> you need to know who the fuck john waters yeah. is like get it together people um uh but because so much of uh, you know I went to your class once, and that's actually how you 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 behave. <laughs> your elders, yeah. get it together, you yeah. people. Yeah. I don't know if the radio audience knows that <laughs> is a professor at the San Francisco Art Institute. Yes. on and off. <laughs> that's right. It's very. If you take one of my classes, it's very Clockwork Orange. You know, I strap you into a chair, and we peel your eyes open, and you know. But it, it, it's interesting now to see how much influence and what a visionary i mean i i think we can you know look at modern drag and i know that sasha valor recently you know did a screening sasha valor one of the winners of rupaul's drag race um who you know who is a big fan of vegas and space and did a, a screening in new york um not too long ago but it, it's it's influence is unmistakably seen all over you know modern drag right and if I'm not mistaken, the screening that Sasha did was in partnership with the AFI in, in New York. So that's that is, you know, cinema recognizing significant oh, landmarks. Fon Fon Fon. Fon Fon Fon, indeed. So we talked about the bittersweet highs and lows. By that point, I was used to someone uh, putting something on and not even thinking to reach out and say, hello, we're doing this, or even thinking, are they still alive? But that's singular to Sasha Velour, I'm sure. So I don't know her. Um, I'm happy and gratified. It continues to be um, propagated, so to speak. But um, there's always that dichotomy. You know, I don't do social networking. I never have. I see it as a cult that I choose not (laughs) to um, be a part of. And I realize I miss out on a lot of stuff. And if I chose to do the Insta or the Facebook, I could be more engaged. It's harder to find me. But people do find me. People do. There's a documentary being made now by Scott Brauch about Doris, dear Doris, and he's going to uh, interview X in a week or two. He came out to San Francisco and interview me for two days. Um, there's a biography in the works by Craig Seligman that he worked on for many, many years and is uh, getting a new breath of life. He's got a new agent. He believes it'll be uh, sold to a trade publisher in the next year. Um, you know, as I said, someone reached out to me to want to do an opera. Um, as you recall, Michael and Peaches, there was a, a six-page color uh, layout in Empire Magazine, a British yeah. film journal. Yeah. So every three or four or five years, this pops up, and um, all you have to do is Google Philip R. Ford, and you will find my behind-the-scenes Vegas in space with a, an email. So if you want to, you can. Again, um, if I were on social media, I could be um, something else, but I don't have the time. And, and, and one, I think you're you're really the smartest of all of us by staying off of it, quite frankly. Yes, but I also I, agree. I also have to, I hear that to yeah, everyone. I also have to say that your blog for all the listeners who are interested in knowing more about Vegas and Space, do Google Philip R. Ford in Vegas and Space because you will find this incredible blog that uh, Philip has created that really tells the story. It has tons of great images great uh, links to um, online videos, um, including some of the live events we've discussed. Um, 
But before we wrap up, because I, I know we're running out of time and I could talk about this movie forever, I have to I ask Miss X or tell Miss X, although I know she knows already. Um, you know, do, well, Doris Fish is incredible <laughs> yes. and yes. she's the heroine yes. and, you know, she's clearly the Jane Fonda or, you know, the Barbarella of the movie. But my favorite character in the film is Queen Veneer. And I, well, I love villains, but the villains have to be fabulous. And your, you know, your looks, that ponytail, you know, your sneer, your line delivery, you know, all of it's just delicious. Did you and Doris, I mean, was it just always known that well, you were gonna play the, always the, the bad girl? Tippy and Doris and Frida were always the blondes and I was the brunette. I was mm -hmm. always the one with the barb, the cynical repartee, uh, the nasty, the arched eyebrow, the arched eyebrow, yeah, the dreaded arched Some, eyebrow. Someone once said, um, <laughs> you know, if, if they created a, a sluts a go go um, um, amusement park, uh, Miss X would have the um, the roller coaster, and it would be the the cocked eyebrow. Um, so yes, uh, uh, that was, uh, well, I guess it was part of my personality, certainly at the time. Um, and, uh, I played many villains on stage as well as, uh, on screen. And, uh, well, I always say I get, I get it out. I get it out that way by playing villains and then I can be really nice in my, uh -huh. But you're the sweetest. I mean, you're the sweetest. Well, yes, the, exactly. at least for my life. Well, Just I, like Joan Crawford. I played her. She more was really than nice once. in real life, I hear. Uh, <laughs> I still, yes, I still. Yeah. You're still playing her. You're really nice. This is your, my way of life, period. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I'm not going to cut my children out of my will. That I will That's not do. No, and I'll say, you know, um, Peaches and Michael, we've had this fantasy for quite a few years of a dramatic film being made of this story. And uh, sort of course, there's a self-serving um, aspect to that of, um, um, you know, sort of preserving this legacy that's really um, singular and unique. But I also think about the opportunities for young actors to get to play these people, Philip Mills and Brad Chandler and Phil Ford, and also get to play Queen Veneer and Tracy Daniels again right. in a uh, different type of setting. Right. You know, so I think that's a fantastic fantasy that I still hold in my heart that someday someone write a script and turn this into a, a movie. Um, you know, well, so Michael and I, you know, we just finished collaborating on our first feature film. We've written a horror movie together and we've we've co-written. No. Yes. Yeah, we did. What? So we, we've just finished. We're, all, we're working on another draft. Um, and so I think I think that Michael and I both believe that this needs to be done. It absolutely must be done. Um, but then there's this other part of it that is like, why aren't Philip R. Ford and Miss X writing this screenplay? You know, because. You, I, nobody could I do just it. hope that I live long enough to see it happen. That's that's what I, I yeah I right. I you know, that's a good question. I feel like I have okay. very little to add. It is what it is, and I think somebody else needs to 
put their perspective on it through the, the lens of time. Okay, age. okay, Philip. Again, okay, I will we'll become do it. We'll do it. Inseparable <laughs> self. I could dictate a treatment to anyone. Um, I'm too lazy to type it because I have a demanding corporate job. But I could dictate what it should be in well. a day or two. If anyone likes to take forehand. Well, Philip, I will say to kind of validate what you're saying, the day after we did the 25th anniversary at Frameline, Peaches and I had coffee in her neighborhood, and there definitely was the conversation of like, someone's got to do this sometime. So it's 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 out in the stars. Well, let, let's just say this, dear listeners, like you heard it here first. If if none of you get off your lazy asses and write the screenplay, then Michael Verratti and I are damn well going to do it. Uh, because, you know, we re- we want to see this movie. And, you know, I, I feel like movies about movies are my favorite thing. Uh, I made a movie about yes. movies. And that's that's the that, uh, you know, I do I do stage shows about movies and that I love movies. So I love the idea of this and I actually just recently rewatched uh, Ed Wood and was thinking about how. It's the best Tim My Burton favorite. movie. By far, yeah, it's the best it's, Tim Burton movie. It's, it's such a beautiful movie. And it's a backstage musical. It's so I mean, good. You know, it's, well, it's not really a musical, but like The Boyfriend. But, you know, there's what's going on out here, yeah. and then there's what's going on. I mean, but there's the backstory, too, of San Francisco mm-hmm. in the 80s yes. um, with the uh, whole versions of drag and the climate of fear and um, and half the people yeah. we know and we, died. we didn't even touch yeah. on the drugs or the sex work. So, you know, those are just those are just little titillated sure. bits that, you know, will keep you dangling because, you know, th- there's more to this story that we cannot squeeze into one, you know, 45-minute discussion. So, you know, the, the, I right. think I think well, we've talked about it before. Maybe Michael, you and I we've got our we we've got our system down. We now know how to co-write a screenplay together. So, you know, it might be time to uh, get Philip to dictate that treatment to us. Right. And until then, just know, glamour first, glamour last, <laughs> glamour right. always. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Miss X and thank Philip you. R. Ford for joining us um, and, and having this conversation, you know, every few years and sometimes twice in the same week. <laughs> um, yes. You know. <laughs> Get better every time. Um, yeah. It's always my pleasure. Um, I think it's always Philip's pleasure as well, especially if he can do it from the from the comfort of his own home. Then it's really <laughs> exactly. I had a nap before I started. <laughs> I there that. you go. I came right from the bed. The little dog is still in there snoozing. I oh, love that. Oh. Oh. He's very old. All right, thank you all. And welcome back. I mean, what an amazing conversation with Miss X and Philip R. Ford, uh, and just the the insight and the history of queer cinema and life that they provide through just the singular lens of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, and and Michael, it, it's there. It's right in the interview. I, I think you and I need to get off our asses and create this uh, this narrative version of the behind the scenes story of the making of Vegas in space. It's just, it's so operatic, you know, it's just this epic story of the making of the sci-fi film. You know, my favorite Tim Burton movie is Ed Wood. And this would be like the queer, fabulous drag version of Ed Wood. So 
you know, let's do it. Let's write a script together Uh, or another another script. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, just as we said in the interview, it is overdue. We started talking about should we do a Vegas in space movie uh, the day after the 25th at Frameline. I remember we were sitting at a coffee shop in your neighborhood blocks away yeah. from the house where they made Vegas in space. We're we're being uh urged by the universe to to uh make this journey, I think. Yes, I agree. And I and and I love movies about movies uh clearly. Um so this this is this is a project. So any of you bitches out there who think you're going to do this ahead of us, just uh just forget about it. Um the other thing about that interview um, and, I, and I find this with when you work with people repeatedly, you know, uh, as you know, I've done a ton of shows with Mink Stoll over the years and a lot of shows with Elvira. And, you know, what you, you want to do is ask all the questions that everyone wants to hear the answers to. But you also want to have enough of a conversation that maybe something new comes out. And I have to say that of all the shows I've done with Philip R. Ford, um, his discussion of how the death of Doris and Tippy, you know, before the film premiere and how hard it was for he and Miss X to go on that journey. This, what should have been a celebratory journey while their friends were no longer with them um, was so touching in this interview and him being so vulnerable and talking about, you know, being homeless and, you know, uh, falling into drugs and alcohol. Like a lot of people don't understand that AIDS affected everyone here and you know even if you didn't get sick um you know the loss of your friends uh in many ways could be you know just is devastating you know so i thought that was beautiful and i and i'm really glad that he opened up about that no absolutely i think that it's it's easy to look at all of the glamour of the movie and just think of this kind of spectacle on the screen. But there is a lot of real heartache and a lot of personal tragedy and triumph behind the making of this movie. And what uh, Philip and Miss X spoke to is a very, very important chapter in queer history that we would all do to take a pause and and think about because a lot of people carried a lot of sadness on their shoulders to get us to where we are today. And uh, I I really, I am so grateful that they they spoke to that and shared that with us. Yeah, and it's like such a a brutal reminder um, of of how different the world would be uh, without AIDS. You know, Leo Herrera, who's a brilliant artist, is working on a project, a, a film imagining a world without AIDS. And, you know, you can just think of countless people and what they might have been able to do. And, you know, Doris Fish's star was rising, you know, and and she was on a trajectory. And it's just, you know, imagine if Doris, you know, could have uh, realized you know, every, all of her potential, it would have been incredible, you know, and, and, you know, without AIDS, you know, so much would have been different in, in, especially in the drag world. So yeah, I don't know. That was really touching and I'm really glad we got to talk to them. Um, But not to bum you all out, the listeners, because we, we actually, Michael and I, believe it or not, we're not the only obsessed fans of Vegas in Space. <laughs> and and as is tradition on the Midnight Mass podcast, we uh we we want to talk to 
you know, fellow obsessed fans. So we're quite lucky to be joined today by a filmmaker who is making a documentary all about the legacy and magic and wonder that was and is Doris Fish. And we're going to talk to him now. And his name is Scott Bratt. So listen along. Greetings and welcome back. Of course, you cannot make a cult movie without the cult that celebrates it. That's the audience. And one of the things we love to do here at Midnight Mass is bring a super fan of the movie or an artist who is influenced by the movie in question. And luckily today, in honor of Vegas in Space, we are joined by Scott Brat, who is not only a super fan of this movie, but is also the director of a forthcoming documentary called Dear Doris, all about the life of Doris Fish. Welcome, Scott. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. I, I have to say, I know I speak for Michael and I uh, together when I say we are so grateful and excited that you're making this documentary. Um, you know, but before we talk about the genesis of the documentary, let's back up to the beginning of your interest or shall I say obsession like how did you first discover Doris in Vegas in space well um it's actually I'm, I'm newer to it so I'm late to the game but it was about 12 years ago uh my friend wrote for a local online zine here I'm in Portland Oregon and they my best friend's part, old partner and they told me about the film and the making of the film and so I would really I felt I went into the film knowing the backstory already. So when I watched it for the first time, I don't know, I feel like it was probably for me a better experience where I was able to see and notice the do it yourselfness of it. And I know that the three of us are filmmakers and have all wrangled in our friends to actually be in our films ourselves. But watching it, I feel it was sort of like a, a queer version of like an Edward movie with a lot more color, you know, like where you see the strings on the spaceships, you see the skyline being made of like lipstick and perfume bottles. Um, I love that about it. The kitsch of it, the Miss X playing multiple characters. I mean, I just loved all of it. And then reading about it and knowing that a lot of it was just shot in Doris's apartment, you know, I think is, I mean, we've all been there, I think. I mean, I know myself have been there, you know, where we just have to do with what we have and knowing that, you know, she's not around anymore, it's her legacy. So every time we can watch it, we revisit her. So that's what I love so much about it. And, you know, you see this movie, you, you love this movie, but then when did you decide to really go down the path of, of documenting the history of this movie, because there's, there's a huge leap from being a fan to, to spending the time to make a, a documentary about it. Well, actually I went down the rabbit hole of the internet, the World Wide web, um, you call it. And it took me to Peach's crisis page. And I believe it was an article that Michael, you wrote, uh, I think it's called the strange case of Vegas in space. And that, took me on to like being all of, and I'm not even like that internet savvy, but it took me on to like Wikipedia, all these other pages about who is Doris Fish. And so I started just creating this timeline and it was a hard copy and it got stolen out of my car. My car got broken into. So I was like, what? So that was about like 10 years ago. And I was just a fan waiting, wanting to watch a movie myself as an audience member, but I just felt like it was never happening. And so I want to brush up on my screenwriting skills and took a class by Randall Johansson, I'm probably butchering his last name, and he wrote The Doors for Oliver Stone. And I was like, what better way to, or advice to be given 
by, you know, an instructor than him. And so he sort of, you know, tutored me along a little bit of making this into a narrative, but I felt like my writing was horrible because I didn't really know the people. I was watching these home videos and stuff, but there's only so much that you can know about these people. So um, I reached out to Philip R. Ford, which took a while because he's not on the internet. And by the time I talked to him on the phone, I'm like, I'm going to make a documentary. And it's the best way to document history. Um, and so with that, it just got the ball rolling. It's taken a little bit longer with COVID and everything than expected. But it's for me, it's like in the same way of Party Monster was first a documentary and uh, Boys Don't Cry was first a documentary by the same directors. You know, like what better way to actually learn about these people than to go and film these subjects, these friends of Doris, these, you know, people in the film of Doris and have that, you know, permanently in history, like the raw footage that can be seen, but edited down for a documentary. But if I were to make it, or if anybody out there would to make a movie or a mini series on Doris Fish or the Slutsagogo, which is a group that she was in, that a lot of them went on to star in Vegas in space, her legacy, um, you know, I just wanted to do that. I'm like, well, no one else is doing it that I know of. I know there's a book that's being made for like the last while. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to do it. I'll get the ball rolling. That is so great. And I have to say that this is a podcast. So the people listening can't see Scott. So I'm going to describe to you what what, what we're seeing uh, here. Scott's wearing a fabulous uh, leopard print sweater. Um or a jumper if you're from Australia, uh, <laughs> like Doris was, uh, and sits in front of a wall covered in hot pink faux fur and twinkling pink lights with a, a, an original Vegas in Space one sheet framed behind him, as well as a, a Vegas in Space Japanese uh, advertisement. So you are, you, you've got a, a Vegas in Space theme going on there at home. Now, is this, a, is this a set that you made special for us, or is your home covered in fun fur? No, uh, I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be vacuuming it all the time. I could not imagine because I think with Vegas and Space, Doris spent a thousand dollars on Fun for New York, which I don't even know what a thousand dollars was for the, like eighty one or eighty. Um, but yeah, like I could imagine hanging it up and like I work on making a movie, it, like and it's based on this look and none of that. So the vacuuming would just drive me crazy. So no, this is for a set. I do love that Doris was inspired to really make a movie because she bought a thousand dollars worth of fun fur. Is is fun fur easy to find in twenty twenty one? Well, I'm in Portland, so when we went down to go interview uh, Philip R. Ford, I went and all they had was lime green in Portland, and so the hot pink, magenta, whatever you call it. I had to go outside of Portland to the suburbs, which is always scary for me. Um, <laughs> go to the suburbs, and they probably thought I was some raver going to Burning Man, making some leggings. But I did find it, so I have lime green. I was asking the producer of my documentary. She's the one that told me to add the twinkly lights. But I was like, am I more of a pink or a lime green? I'm really bad. So they said pink. <laughs> um, well, I have to ask, because we had the uh, great pleasure of, of just speaking with Miss X, who you will soon be meeting in person for the film. And, um, you know, I revealed that uh, of all the characters in Vegas in Space, Queen Veneer is my favorite character. But, to be fair, I like villains in general. And especially Queen Veneer. I mean, that is like 
it's Disney villain meets, you know, Margaret Hamilton's Wicked Witch of the West. You know, it's like so fabulous. Um, do you have a favorite queen or character from uh, Vegas in Space? I feel boring because I like Tracy Daniels, but I think I just love the wittiness. I love the jawline of Doris Fish I'm obsessed with. I feel like I have like no jawline, so I'm making up for it, like loving her so much. So she's easy to spot. I found um, Doris Fish was an extra on a TV show and the quality is so horrible that I was like, I think I know that jaw in the background. It's all pixelated and I sent it to Miss X. I'm like, is this Doris Fish? Like, yes. I'm like, oh my God, like she was an extra, but I found her by her jaw. So I love Tracy Daniels. Well, honestly, and if you're making the documentary about Doris Fish, to pick any other character as your favorite would almost be a betrayal, I think. So, I yes, I mean, there's like in the documentary, I'm like, oh, like I want to veer off and talk about like going, you know, know more about Kippy or know more about different characters. But I know that Doris is probably watching over me on her whatever cloud in heaven, and she'd probably strike me dead because she liked the attention. So I. I'm stuck doing it with Doris. It's not the Tippy movie. It's not whatever. It's Doris Fish. But I was told by Miss X that she was really the Valkyrie of the group of Sluts A Go Go, which is, you know, the punk rock group. I feel like they're punk rock for the times of these drag queens that just followed the bethrown drum and were not afraid to be themselves, even, you know, pissing off their own community. So I think that's amazing. Um, well, I have to ask, and of course, no spoilers, because we don't want people to not see the film. We don't want to ruin the movie in advance, but uh, did you learn any uh, bond mots or bits of information about Doris that you didn't know or that you were excited to share with people? Um, I think one of the most exciting parts, because I know I've listened to your podcast where Philip R. Ford is on it, and you're probably going to hear Miss X and Philip on this one, but um, Jacqueline Hyde I met, and they were in uh, Sibling the Synthetics, which is the group of um, that Doris was in in uh, Sydney. And so meeting her, I went to Paris and met her and I felt maybe it's just an Australian accent, but I feel like that was the closest I ever got to Doris. And just hearing about how, you know, she would sort of, she got in fights with the audience and actually had to get her uh, jaw wired. And so I thought that was really interesting, you know, about how much she wasn't just, you know, like this sort of uh, pretty thing on camera, you know, this funny thing, but she was actually a huge advocate. So that part really inspired me. But I mean, I've told other people about it, but how she actually, I guess, wore like the same pantyhose multiple times and actually had like peed through her pantyhose and how after a couple of days, it smelled really bad. And I was like, wow, like I thought that she was like, you know, well put, to girl, put together girl, you know, but I'm like, I guess not. She's probably, she reminds me of like the Go-Go's before they became famous and were performing in basements of, you know, that's not like pee and poo, so. <laughs> I mean, that that is the that is the reality of drag. Uh, even, even, you know, 25 years ago when I started, you know, it was not glamorous. There was a grit to it. I mean, it was inherently punk rock because it was still underground. So the glamour was all artifice. And actually, you know, yeah, of course, you peed wherever you could and, um, I, 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 now I'm very impressed because when you say she got her mouth wired shut, is that, that's because she actually got in a physical altercation with someone? Yeah, she got, um, in fights and they even talk about it. She, there's a video on 
YouTube. I'm sure we've all maybe seen it called Pittsburgh Today. And she has to go, you know, pitch the film Vegas in Space. But I feel that they're, um, they had different reason to bring her on. And I feel that by the end of the show, personally, I feel that she wins over the audience more so. But the most uncomfortable person is the guy interviewing her. And she talks about, like, how she's, and he asked her, and when I have people watch, like, sort of raw edit of, you know, stuff, that he's like, have you been cold cocked, you know? Like, he's so, I feel like he's, like, poking her with a stick. Like, she's, you know, and that is just, like, so annoying. But anyways, but yeah, she talks about it that, you know, before she became more of a name that she's been beat up. But I know it's probably more hardcore, I believe, like, in Sydney. That's just from hearing about Jacqueline Hyde's stories, um... But yeah, like she was a badass and she was an advocate, you know, for things that we're still fighting today. But before, you know, it's even social media was out there. So she was, you know, an advocate for not just drag rights, but animal rights. Uh, she pissed off the leather community because she was saying stuff like, I would hate to have like a gross ass hang out of like my skin, like chaps, you know, that the gay men were wearing. Uh, so she wasn't afraid to piss off her own community. And I feel like the that the queer community was the ones that were really pissed off more at her than the straight community. Personally, uh, she had a gay access channel for the gay cable access in San Francisco, and people were upset that she was representing the queer community on there and would actually write hate mail. Queer people were writing this about a drag queen, about another queer person. So could that be, I guess, like your biggest... uh, not what would we call it, like your biggest enemy to sort of overcome, I think it's just really interesting. But she was talking about the gender continuum, which is now finally being addressed, even down to painting her teeth white, which people, you know, bleach their teeth and their assholes now. So she was way ahead of the time. So. She was, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it goes, it's just that thing where you look at queens like uh, Doris or, you know, Divine, and it's still incredible how... Uh, their designs, their looks, their vision for what drag could be is still, you know, progressive. It's still, you know, modern. It, you know, uh, we learned that Doris actually designed all the looks for Vegas in Space. So, you know, it's Doris painting the girls different colors, you know, their faces different colors and matching their wigs. And, um, you know, and they were very creative. I mean, one of the best gifts I've ever received uh, Ever, I don't even know if I've told you about this, Michael, is uh, when Ginger Quest gave me her necklace uh, from the movie. And so I don't know if you remember, but she wears this green sort of, um, it looks like beads, like green, big, chunky beaded necklace around her neck, you know, when she's talking about the Gerlinium jewels. And um, do you know what that necklace is? Have I told you guys this? No. It is bottle caps from 7-Up Bottles that are strung together with yellow yarn that Doris tied behind Ginger's neck. So it's this necklace that looks so cool on film, but when you see it in person, I have it, I'm gonna show it to you. It has Ginger's caked on little green foundation still inside of it from all these years later, and it's just plastic bottle caps. Like, you know, Philip said, it was construction paper and cardboard and faux fur, but it, it's like, it's a fantasy. And that's movie making, whether it's an Ed Wood budget or an MGM Wizard of Oz budget, it's all illusion and it's fabulous. Yeah. So you're holding like a piece of her art that she's touched and made. Like, yeah. Do you have it framed or in a shadow box or where is Not, 
not yet, but I do have it in a very safe space. I've been lucky enough with this weird career to get a lot of mementos from from people I admire and movie memorabilia, and I'm kind of I kind of keep it stored away. And maybe I'm being too precious about some of it. You know what I mean? Like, because it's like I want to I want to do something really cool with it. The other thing, I don't know if you all have heard this story, but the artist Jim Winters and Michael Wirtz, um, who are visual artists found screen prints in a dumpster. Have you heard this story? And took the screen prints home. They were in a dumpster, did them and whatever you do to screen prints and then de determined and figured out through some research that they were Doris's. Yeah. Wasn't this yeah. around the same time that Simply, Simply Stunning came out where Arturo played Doris around yes. this time? So I was talking to Miss X um, the other day about how like, they keep popping up, you know, like you think like, like where the hell were these screen prints for so many years? And like, you know, like they keep pop, like Doris's legacy keeps popping up every, you know, 10 or whatever years. So that's like, you know, one of many things and hopefully she keeps popping up in the future too. So I'm excited. Well, that, that uh, brings us to, you know, your film and, and, and saying thank you for making it. And thank you for being here on the podcast today. Uh, and we wish you the best of luck, you know. What, yeah. what, what I know you, you're probably tired of answering this, but when can we see the movie? Oh, my yes. God. <laughs> I'm hoping, we're hoping it'll be probably like 2023. Uh, I know Mardi Gras is having the 50th anniversary, which is a gay pride in Sydney. Um, I know that Doris has a huge, you know, fan base, not just around the world and specifically San Francisco, but also in Sydney. Um, so that's what we're sort of gearing towards. We're sort of set back uh, with COVID, obviously. So we've been working more behind the scenes. We're going to do interviews with Miss X next. Well, it's gonna, I don't know, in June, because when this comes out, we'll probably be behind us. But anyways, so then uh, San Francisco um, again, and hopefully New York and possibly uh, Australia, but just trying to get hopefully the full story that we can, you know, shove down people's throats like in an hour and a half long documentary. But hopefully one day it will be, you know, maybe a narrative or a mini series. Well, we can't thank you enough too, because it's, as you said, as, as Doris's legacy continues to pop up, you're the one that's now helping keep it move forward. And we need that. Yeah. She's watching over us all. I think we're, yeah. And if we, if I do her wrong, I swear she'll strike me down dead. So. She will. She will. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no pressure, Scott. And if I end up dead, you know it's not from anything. Doris killed me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, take care and thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, well, that was our interview with Scott Brott. Um, and how excited are you to see his documentary? I can't wait. I think that, uh, you know, what Scott is doing is exactly, you know, in line with what we talk about all the time, making a love letter to this icon and this film that he he really just believes in and, and loves so deeply. I can't wait. And I think... You know, Doris Doris is someone who deserves celebration, so I can't wait to see the movie. Yeah, me too. And um, I have to tell you, listeners, uh, as we uh, near the end of our Vegas in Space 30th anniversary celebration of the movie, um, 
it was brought to my attention that um, actor Timmy Spence, who appears in the movie Vegas in Space and also created the theme song, is very angry with me uh, because he was not included in this podcast uh, today. So, Michael and I promise you this is not the end. Uh, for us, celebrating Vegas in space. You too, Timmy. We're going to bring you on the show sometime in the future. Um, her panties are in a wad. And uh, and we may even, we may even, you know, work on this project we've talked about for so long. So this is just another chapter in the long list of celebrations of Vegas in space. And Michael, as always, I love celebrating these movies with you. I feel exactly the same, Peaches, and I think that especially when it comes to this movie, uh, we have had many chapters, and there will be many chapters to come. So, Yeah, that's true. So if you don't already, please uh, come and find us on Facebook. We have a Midnight Mass podcast page on Facebook. Of course, you can follow Peaches Christ or Michael Verratti on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. We have a Midnight Mass handle on Twitter, um, which is what again, Michael? You can follow us on Twitter at Midnight Mass Pod. All righty. So we're on the social media stuff, um, and we look forward to celebrating another cult movie uh, with you on the next episode. And just remember, uh, you are all the children of the podcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>